Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series, Talking in the Dark. If you're a good Christian, then your spiritual life is always sweetness and light, right? Or maybe being spiritually dry means you're on the cusp of something new. Join us for the message, Praying When You're Dry. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. You know, if you're a good Christian, then your spiritual life is always sweetness and light, right? Amen. <laughs> or does being spiritually dry actually mean you're on the cusp of something new? We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the service. Our scripture this reading comes, scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 77, beginning with the first verse. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God that he may hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. I think of God and I moan. I meditate and my spirit faints. You keep my eyelids from closing. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old and remember the years of long ago. I commune with my heart in the night. I meditate and search my spirit. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And I say, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have displayed your might among the peoples. With your strong arm, you redeem your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The word of God for the people of God. In two and a half weeks, it will be the 16th anniversary of my mother's stroke. And it was a massive stroke. It happened in August of 2006 while my entire family was on vacation in Vienna, Austria. We had just spent several days touring Prague and the Czech Republic, and this is going to be our first night in Vienna. Now, having a medical emergency is never fun. Having it while on vacation is even less fun. But having it while you're vacationing in a foreign country is a nightmare. The emotional life of our entire family centered on my mother. And so when, when the matriarch of a clan, though, is suddenly disabled, everything in the clan shifts. And so the life of my family now centered on getting mom just the right care. And so relationships and responsibilities, they changed as we slowly accustomed ourselves to the idea and the reality that life was never actually going to be the same again. For a year after the stroke, we all strove valiantly to help mom recover as much functioning as possible. But at the one-year mark, it became evident that little of her lost functioning was ever going to come back. 
Mom lost the use of the entire right side of her body, and she never walked again. It ends up that the clot that caused the stroke had lodged in the language center of her brain, which largely took away most of her ability to read or write or even to speak. Now, thankfully, because the ability to understand language is in a different part of the brain, at least she retained the ability to be able to understand what we were saying. But Mother loved to read, but even more, she loved to talk. She was the proverbial social butterfly, always able to make friends wherever she went, and we sometimes joked that Mom could have a conversation with a lamppost. And I think taking away her ability to speak was really just one of the cruelest twists of fate that life could have ever taken for her. A few weeks after the stroke, we were finally able to fly mom back to the United States from Vienna on an air ambulance. I actually rode with her. After several months in a rehab center, we took her home. She required at-home medical care, health care, seven days a week for the next five and a half years until she died in March of 2012. Well, during that first year, there was so much stress and anxiety, and it was both from the fallout of the stroke itself, as well as the fact we were just in limbo about what the future would hold. The one bright spot for me during that year was that my lay ministry at my church was going very well. Officially, I had the title of Chair of the Mission Team, but I largely functioned as unpaid staff. I even went to staff meetings. And in itself, leading the mission program at a large church is, is a part-time job. But in addition to that, I taught in various capacities. I was part of the weekly worship planning team. I served on several other committees and task force. So together, everything I did at that church was really the equivalent of a full-time position. I felt deeply called to ministry and there was no other kind of work that had any interest for me. I couldn't imagine doing any other kind of work. But doing it without pay was becoming increasingly harder to manage. Well, when a new senior pastor was appointed, one of the associate pastors and I approached him about putting me officially on staff. So a proposal for director of mission was presented to the Staff Parish Relations Committee, or the SPRC, and they approved it. So at least everything at church was going smoothly, and I thought I was going to be on staff within weeks. The situation with my mother and my family may be incredibly stressful, but at church, I was on cloud nine. Unfortunately, financial issues at the church led the finance committee to ask the SPRC not to create any more staff positions at this time. So days after the one-year anniversary of my mom's stroke, the senior pastor told me that I would not be hired after all. Well, this severe disappointment, along with all the changes in my family's life and the realization that my mom was never going to get any better, at that time, it really just caused the bottom to fall out of my emotional and my spiritual life. You see, after trying to keep it together for that whole year, but after finding out that I would not be hired within days, of that, I, I fell into a clinical depression. And within weeks of that, I was on antidepressants and I was seeing a therapist. Now, I was never severely depressed, I was never suicidal, 
But as anyone who's ever struggled with depression can tell you, even moderate depression can leave you feeling pretty lousy, and it completely interferes with your life and even your day-to-day -day functioning. So what followed was a time of depression, but also a time of prolonged and serious spiritual dryness. I found that I simply could not pray. I, I still went to worship each Sunday. I prayed as part of the congregation. But individually, I couldn't even begin to form the first sentence. I would end up just sitting there, just kind of staring off into space. And this went on for seven months. What finally broke this logjam was, first of all, reading the book upon which this sermon series is based, Talking in the Dark, as well as actually a very profound dream that I had one night through which I truly felt that God was communicating with me. And after that, I could pray again. And someday I might tell you about that dream, how Godzilla and a herd of dinosaurs restored my spiritual life. But that's going to be a sermon for another day. Well, then to finish out this story, two years after my church did not hire me to be director of mission, they once again became inches within hiring me, this time as director of adult education. Unfortunately, that was the time when then a group at my church organized to prevent my hire because I was gay. And at that point, I decided it's just time to move on from this church. So I accepted a lay staff position at Northgate UMC, which from there led me to become a licensed local pastor. And I got appointed as the pastor at Oak Haven UMC, which led to my ordination, which led to my appointment here at Trinity UMC, for which I am now beginning your fourth, my fourth year as your pastor. So it's a happy ending. Well, that is until COVID came along. But still glad that I'm here. Now, I've shared this part of my story about my spiritual dryness because I want everyone to realize that spiritual dryness is one of the most common spiritual problems that people can experience. Yet, not unlike depression and other types of, of mental health, people will rarely talk about it. And that includes even talking about it in the church. But the thing is, we need to talk about it because a major bout of spiritual dryness can, can really send you for a loop. And like just as we do in our emotional lives, we often want to give the impression that all is well with us spiritually and that we're not experiencing any major hang-ups or hiccups. So we project an air of confidence, even when we're feeling anything but. And we then start to, as they sometimes say in 12-step groups, we judge our insides by others' outsides. Or in other words, we notice that others seem to be getting along swimmingly while inside we feel dry as a bone. And we just assume that others just must be better at this whole spirituality thing than we are. And of course, social media has only magnified these very human tendencies and this tendency that all we have to do is, is present this rosy facade of our real lives while inside we may feel like an imposter. So what exactly is spiritual dryness? It's, it's a feeling or an impression that God is no longer close by or God's growing more distant. God seems to be silent or absent from our lives. When we worship or when we pray, we may feel as if we're just going through the motions or that we lack any kind of fruitfulness. But I gotta tell you, spiritual dryness is as old as humanity itself. 
Wesley was reading from the Psalms, and that particular psalm was written by a man who was in the middle of a major spell of spiritual dryness. Psalm 77 is written by Asaph. And we don't know a lot about Asaph, but we do know that he was a Levite. And in his day, he was perhaps the most well-known and well-respected worship leader at that time. He wrote 13 of the Psalms that appear in our Bible. King David appointed him as the chief music minister before the Ark of the Covenant. He even founded a school of temple musicians that were known as the Sons of Asaph. And they were charged to prophesy in the temple through music, particularly the music of voices and lyres and harps and cymbals. And yet, this worship warrior wrote a psalm lamenting his own spiritual dryness. This song, this psalm, is his prayer of despair, and he's brutally honest. He writes, My soul refuses to be comforted. I think of God and I moan. I meditate and my spirit faints. You keep my eyelids from closing. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. A little later, he asks, will the, Lord, will the Lord spurn forever? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, has he in anger shut up his compassion? Well, Asaph is experiencing profound spiritual dryness. Yet notice, Asaph just keeps on praying. He keeps on worshiping. And so I think this song can, can uh, help us keep several things in mind as we face spiritual dryness. And first of all is just remember that occasional spiritual dryness is a normal part of spiritual life. This psalm was written approximately 3,000 years ago, and I still find it very relatable. We need to keep any bout of spiritual dryness we may have in its proper perspective we're not the first of God's people to experience dryness, and we're not going to be the last. If we continue on a spiritual journey, if we continue in our walk with God, then we're going to experience, <clears throat> we're going to experience spiritual dryness several times over a lifetime. John Wesley kept journals his entire life. And in those journals, he wrote down all the events of his daily life. And when I mean all the events, I mean all the events, including even recording his bodily functions. You may even remember that I, I, I read a little bit from his journal several months ago when I was doing a sermon series on Wesley. Well, he, he developed in his journals a kind of a shorthand system to, to record his experiences. For example, when he prayed, he wrote simply the letter P in his journal. He would then indicate the meaningfulness of his prayers by drawing a horizontal line. Now, if his prayers were fresh and vibrant, he drew his line, his horizontal line, right over the letter P. And if his prayers were average, he would write it kind of just there, right, right through the middle of the letter. But if his prayers were dry and forced, he drew the line under the letter P. And it's apparent from his journals that the great John Wesley, founder of Methodism, could sometimes go for weeks, even months, without feeling as if his prayers were doing any good at all. In fact, less than a year after his heartwarming experience at Aldersgate, the night that he forever re referenced to as the most important night of his life, just a year later, Wesley was writing in his journal that he doubted he was a true Christian and had ever been one his entire life. 
So you see, even great spiritual giants experience spiritual dryness. Uh, the biography of Teresa, uh, Mother Teresa revealed that she spent years sometimes in bouts of spiritual dryness, but without giving up. You see, spiritual dryness is just part of the human condition. Because all long-term relationships, all of them, whether they're with God or a spouse, a child, a best friend, all long-term relationships go through times of ebb and flow and intimacy and distance and highs and lows. In fact, it's really not even humanly possible to maintain a constancy of unchanging emotional affection for anyone. In fact, it's precisely this ebb and flow that makes emotional and spiritual growth possible. I think the crucial thing to remember is, like Asaph, just to keep praying. The importance of perseverance and endurance cannot be overstated. In fact, Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So Asaph also reminds us yet again of the imperity of honesty in our prayers. As we have now said many times over the last several weeks, God already knows everything that's in our hearts and minds, so you might as well be honest with God anyway. You're not fooling anyone, unless maybe perhaps sometimes yourself. Besides, God can take it. I think God will take angry, honest, passionate prayer over lightweight, superficial, limp prayer any day of the week. God wants our passion over anything else. So though, even though spiritual dryness, though, is a part of spiritual life, if it does continue for very long, it is important, though, that we do try to identify uh, the cause of why we might be experiencing dryness at that particular time. And one reason that is usually brought up is that we may experience prolonged dryness because we need to acknowledge some sort of unconfessed sin. Because we know all sin separates us from God, and unresolved guilt or shame can interfere with all of our relationships. So if you're going through a period of spiritual dryness, you might want to ask God to reveal any sin or attachment that may be getting in your way of your walk with God, and then ask for God's strength and help to repent and get your life back on track. But I want you to remember, though, that spiritual dryness in and of itself is not a sin. That would be like saying depression is a sin or having a dry spell in your marriage is a sin. It's just part of the human condition. Unfortunately, unconfessed sin uh, sometimes um, is brought as the only possible source of spiritual dryness that some Christians will acknowledge. And I think saying that, that unconfessed sin is the only reason you might feel spiritually dry is both untrue, and I think it's actually even harmful. If we do pray earnestly, and we don't uncover any unconfessed sin, then our dryness probably stems from a different cause. And so think about it. We're embodied creatures. So our physiological state can affect our spiritual state. So are you taking good care of yourself? Are you eating right? Are you exercising, attending to any health issues, getting enough rest? Our psychological, our emotional, and mental state can have a profound impact on our spirituality, just as it did with me. So are you feeling stress, boredom, grief, depression, sadness, guilt, shame, fear, or anger? 
And that's whether you're angry at God or someone else or angry at yourself. Any and all of these emotional states can affect our relationship with God. Our dryness may be a signal that we need to deal with one or more underlying issues. Because my depression certainly interfered and contributed to the dryness that I was describing earlier. And if necessary, there is no shame in seeking professional help. I did, and it made a big difference. Our dryness can be the result of the simple fact that we're maybe not devoting adequate time or energy to keeping our spiritual lives vibrant. Maybe we need to explore a different type of prayer or spiritual practice. Maybe a good book, a new prayer group, or a weekend retreat. That may do wonders for bringing our spiritual lives back on track after they've grown a little stale. Or perhaps we've made the mistake, it's a very common mistake, of substituting church activities as important as they are, but we take them as a substitute for having our own personal spiritual and prayer life. We also need to remember that any type of significant life change can result in spiritual dryness. Yet we do need to keep in mind the difference there's a big difference between change and transition. Now, change is what happens kind of outside of us. It's a new job, the beginning or ending of a major relationship, moving to a new city. It can be the death of a loved one. Any kind of major change can bring spiritual dryness. But transition, on the other hand, is the interior work that we must do in order to utilize that change for our own personal and spiritual growth. So change happens to everyone and you cannot escape it. Transition and growth, however, are optional. We must choose to do the hard work of transition and to use the spiritual, or to use a spiritual term, the hard work of sanctification. Spiritual dryness, in fact, and I think this is often the case, is a sign for us. It's a sign that we need to keep up with the faith for dryness so often is the sign that God sends us that we are on the cusp of transition, the cusp of growth and further sanctification. So whatever the cause of our dryness, we do well to follow the example of Asaph and use memory to help us get through it. In his psalm, Asaph remembered how God had been at work in the past in the life of Israel. He writes, I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord, I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your mighty deeds. So when we go through times of dryness, and we will, it can help to remember how God has been present with us in the past. And there are some times when it is great to have the passion and vigor of youth. It can be wonderful. But there are times when age and experience will give you a real advantage. You see, the longer that we've walked with God, the more we know just to expect times of dryness as normal and inevitable. The longer we've walked with God, the more we know that times of fruitfulness and intimacy with God, they're going to come again. We can see the arc of our lives and how God has been with us through the dark times and the good. For now, we may only see one set of footprints in the sand, to allude to that famous poem, but we know that it's not always going to be that way. Or as it says in another one of the Psalms, Psalm 126, May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, 
shall come home with shouts of joy carrying their sheaves. During World War II, the Dutch family of Corrie ten Boom hid several Jews from the Nazis in a hidden closet there in their house. And though they saved many, the family was eventually arrested and Corrie and her sister were sent to a series of different concentration camps. And Corrie's sister eventually died in one of the camps, but, but Corrie was released. In fact, she later found out that her release had been because of a clerical error. Well, after the war, she wrote a book about her experiences called The Hiding Place, and she became a very well-known international speaker. But through surviving the horrors of the Holocaust, while losing her beloved sister, Corrie ten Boom certainly knew firsthand the realities of spiritual dryness, of times when all prayers seemed to do seemed to be nothing more than talking in the dark. And so to this she said, when the train goes through a tunnel and the world becomes dark, do you jump out? Of course not. You sit and trust the engineer to get you through. So may we also trust that same engineer to hope to hold us and keep us until we can see the light at the end of that tunnel. And always remember that the sound of prayer travels in both darkness and in light. Amen. And now receive this benediction. May the Lord walk with you in lightness and in dark, in sunshine and in rain. And you, may you be a light on the path for others. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll continue our sermon series, Talking in the Dark. You'll find audio recordings of all our services on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Remember, we're now worshiping both in person in our sanctuary as well as online. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church, 